Hey, it's great to see you here. Uh, thanks for watching online. For those of you catching this online, either on the live stream or on replay via the app, we're so glad that you are uh, joining us. Thanks for those of you who made it out uh, this morning as well. We are on part three. This is uh, part three of a three-part series. So you're coming in at the finale. It's kind of towards the end of the movie. I'll try and do a quick recap to kind of catch you up a little bit. But if it is a little bit confusing, that might be a little bit of the reason um, why. It's a series that we've titled um, How to Be Unlucky, a series on scratch tickets. And in the update, in like the core of Jesus' teaching... Um, there seems to be kind of collected for us. Um, Here's the things that he most taught about. And it shows up in Matthew chapter five through chapter seven. Um, You see the Sermon on the Mount, which I don't think was an actual specific event, but just Matthew's recollection of all the things that Jesus taught because it shows up again like in in the other like three gospel writers and some of the same similar teachings, but at different timelines. Anyways, one of those really famous passages, and if you grew up in church, you knew them as the Beatitudes, um, kick off chapter five of Matthew and in a very familiar pattern rhythmic way of saying, blessed are those, blessed, blessed, blessed. Um, and that word can mean lucky, it can mean happy, or oh, the joy, or oh, the luck of somebody who finds themselves in these situations. And typically, in sort of wisdom literature of their time, it would be, you know, blessed is somebody who has a, a family and a, and a steady job and has people in life that they care about in a community. And uh, blessed are those who have a vaccine. And blessed are those, lucky are those who, you know, have kept their jobs or kept their income. You know, those would all like make sense. That's kind of what you expect in sort of that pattern. And Jesus flips it on its head completely and says, blessed are the meek, right? Blessed are the people who are are quiet, who tend to kind of get stepped on a a little bit. Blessed are those who don't flex uh, their power or their muscle uh, in a show uh, or a sign of power, but but do something instead, take the alternative. Blessed are those who are poor, uh, either poor physically or financially or or poor in spirit. I mean, both are not great. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, um, after righteousness or just hunger and thirst in general. Um, lucky are those who are basically unlucky. That's the kind of the message uh, that he's going with. Um, and and it's, it's kind of a, a unique take on, on sort of, uh, of us thinking in, into ourselves. We would never say, oh, the luckiness of those who struggle, um, those who suffer and those who are poor. We would say, uh, it's how unfortunate. Oh, the unluck. We would say, oh, what bad luck for somebody who kind of find themselves in that situation. But Jesus instead says, lucky are the unlucky. And in the back of his mind, and it would show up in all, all of his other teachings, is this Jewish concept of um, the randomness of fortune. Um, and it, it, it's basically this idea, it shows up in Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, and I think in his, some of his parables and in some of his teachings, is that when we say, you know, life is, or we're lucky, or we find ourselves in good position, uh, we would say um, that, that that's, it's kind of, there's a luck element to fortune. In this, in this series, we talked about this like vision of Lady Fortune with this wheel, and sometimes we're on top of the wheel of fortune, sometimes we're down below hanging on for dear life, and other times we're just on the side. We've either been, been lucky, but now we're not, or we're hoping to be lucky one day. And the wheel kind of turns, and, and it really has almost nothing to do with us. Um, like life just comes at us, and, and, and when, we, when, we, when we find ourselves on top, we should be thankful. When we're on bottom, it's fine. It's not a result of any necessarily poor decisions that we made sometimes, but it's just, uh, it's just, it's just kind of where we're at. So where, where are we on this wheel, this randomness of fortune, this randomness uh, of lucky in this way? Here's what I mean when it shows up in Ecclesiastes, which I think would have been, again, it's one of the wisdom books that every Jewish parent would have had to have kind of taught their child, make sure that they know the Proverbs, the Psalms, and the, and the Ecclesiastes as a way of life. It says this, the author, probably Solomon, but maybe not anyways, I've seen someone, something else under the sun. In, in other words, in all the things that I've seen in life, and I'm, at this point, I'm old and I'm, I'm rich and I've experienced all of the things, all of the things that you wish you could do when you had money or when you had enough you know, fame or fortune or whatever. 
This, this, is guy, this is a guy who spent his entire life on top of the wheel of fortune, and here's what he has to say about it in his memoirs. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. There is an element of randomness to fortune, time and chance. Not every time does the best team win the tournament. Not every time. It feels like there's some luck involved in this. Um, and it feels like sometimes uh, those who are succeeding in life, perhaps they got there through their smarts and their intellect and their will and drive to succeed, but perhaps it was just right time, right place. And it's really hard to hear that when you're on top of the wheel of fortune because you think I got there from being smart and being more dedicated and more disciplined and I, I saved more when everybody else was buying this. I was saving this and I lived in a certain way so that I could uh, live like like now and so I could live like something else later, whatever Ramsey says about that, that whole you know slogan or whatever. Um, there, there's a sense in which I got here and when you're on top of the wheel, it's really hard to hear well, part of the reason that you're there is because of right time, right place. And you think, yeah, that's what losers say, right? And so for me, it, it, it's a little bit different. I'm up here. And, and Jesus would essentially say, lucky are those who are unlucky. Because perhaps sometimes you can be so high up on the wheel of fortune uh, that you can't really hear the truth about what you there, There's something that just can't be learned because you're too far away. Lucky are those who are clinging on for the bottom of your dear life because there's an element of truth there's an element of actual life and how things work that is so hard to grasp when you're up too high. Uh, there is no training ground like that of being unlucky. That, that was essentially the takeaway from kind of weeks one and week two. There, there's something that we can learn in the, in the realm of being unlucky. And I, I don't wish you poor luck. I don't wish you bad fortune, uh, not in, in, in any way, shape, or form. But I, and I don't know where you're coming from, and I don't know where you find yourself on the wheel right now. Um, but it's important to know that as that wheel turns, and we can't control this, uh, and, and sticking with the wheel analogy, it's kind of like the kid on the, you know, little, little kid on, on, on the Ferris wheel who thinks that it's moving because of how loud I scream, right? It just, it's moving because there's a carny down there with a lever, right? That's how it's moving. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm screaming, I'm enjoying myself, and yet we think sometimes if I do good, maybe, maybe good things will happen. If I do, if I do poorly, the, the reason I'm doing poorly now is because of some decision that I made or some sin in my life or some something that's behind me or whatever. There are things that we can learn about ourselves when we're hanging on for dear life that are incredibly hard to catch and to hear when it's high up. So that's what we covered in the first two talks. If you missed it, there's a, a website you can go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks. Or if you download our app, you can kind of catch along uh, with that. But let's move on to today to kind of close off that argument. Assuming, assuming now that there's an, that sort of teaching that runs in the Old Testament that Jesus would have had in the back of his mind along with every other Jewish person, and that we see Jesus play it out in the form of parables in his teaching, um, then what do we do with this? This is the what's next period. How do I change my life? Or, I mean, if you come here, hopefully this is a, uh, this is a time where we gather together, we kind of learn the way of Jesus, uh, and then go out and live differently as a result of it. So if, if we're going to take this, and this has all been very interesting and very informative, Brent, but what do I do with this? Uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. So, let me start off by this. Uh, my wife and I have been watching The Bachelor again, and I know you're, you're judging me right now, and I can feel that, and I don't like it, and I'm uncomfortable with it. That's fine. Um, I have told myself and friends closest to me that the reason that I watch is because I love the insights into the human psyche and how people reason and how the social game kind of plays out in all of this. And since I talk about it being sort of a research type, type option, I should probably have to talk about it once in a while to prove that I'm not just watching it for myself, but for research 
purposes. So we're talking about it a little bit today. If you've ever watched um, the show, and I don't recommend that you do, but if you ever have, you know that every girl or every guy, depending on if it's The Bachelor or Bachelorette, doesn't matter, we watch them both. Um, it, uh, every show, every contestant wants a one-on-one date with this person. I don't want to do group dates. I want one-on-one focus time, and time's the most important thing. You've got to take advantage of the time you have. Blah, 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 blah. The key is... There is an inherent danger in one-on-one dates because every one-on-one date ends with either a rose, which means you make it to the next round, or a black SUV that hauls you away somewhere. And I don't know where they take you. I guess it's to the airport. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how it all works. But here's what I do know, and I don't know how they do this, but there is a camera waiting for every girl or every guy when they get sent home in the black SUV seconds after they've been told that they're no longer in the competition, six inches from their face, asking them incredibly difficult questions like he just told you he had more feelings for the girl who has a sty on her eye, has no friends, and is causing all the drama in the house. Care to comment on that right now, right? Um, and if you're laughing really hard, it's because you're watching this show too right now because you know exactly who I'm talking about, so guilty as charged. All right, anyways. It's in those moments, though, when rejection is fresh, emotions that are an all-time high, and you're like, I don't even know if you were into him like 10 minutes ago, and now you're broken and crying about this and talking through how you saw yourself, you know, this is, he was the right, he was Mr. Right, and I've been waiting my, all my life, all 21 years of my life for him. And um, you, you see it, and, and you're breaking down, and it's an emotional thing, and you begin, and the, and, the, and the producers are just waiting for you to say anything that they can run with, Right? And they're not, they're, they're not stopping you. They're not like, would you like to retake that? It's just a, it's a rolling film. And so in those moments, they, the, they will say things that either reveal, that reveal unique things about them. And my wife and I will watch, and it's in those moments that we are on the edge of our seat because we, we're, we're trying to figure out, okay, has what he or she been doing this entire show been this, I mean, they know the cameras are on, uh, they know they're supposed to say the right things, and uh, they know that you know millions of people are watching or whatever, and, and judgments are being made, and followers are being accumulated, and all that kind of stuff. Um, what do they say in this moment? And it can it can go one of two ways. They can be really gracious with it, or they can get really vindictive about it, right? And they can talk about how bad, and I was never into him anyways, and what a jerk, and all this kind of stuff. And they can say things that my wife is on the couch going, oh, honey. No, 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 don't say that. Don't, don't do that, right? Or on the other side, oh my gosh, see, I really like her. Isn't she a good person, Brent? She's a good person. That is good. She has a good feel. It's like life coaching time with Kylie. It's really impressive, and I should film it sometime for you. But my favorite line that shows up, and this is where we're going to tie it all in, uh, I swear there's a point to it, um, is these people will say, no matter where they're at in the competition, when they're in the black SUV heading home or heading to the airport or wherever they take you, they'll say this line, well, that was a giant waste of my time. A lot of times they'll say, that was a giant waste of my time. And I'm sitting there uh, eating popcorn usually or drinking something, I don't know. Anyways, uh, saying, calm down. That was like three weeks 
and you didn't like miss a whole lot, right? And besides, you're a social media influencer, so I think you'll be okay, right? Um, but I do want to explore that statement, though, because it's typically one that shows up in the words of, of those who are unfortunate enough to be experiencing a spat of bad luck. Well, that was a giant waste of my time. And it's not just on The Bachelor, because I've sat down with people whose marriages are falling apart after 10 or 12 years, and they, they, I'm their pastor, and so they call me and they say, can we meet for coffee? Like, I need, ugh, this pandemic has been rough, right? And uh, so we meet, and we talk, and they say, it's, it's crazy. It's just all of a sudden, she decided uh, it's not worth it anymore. He decided, um, you know, it's, it's I, can't, I can't even point to something. It wasn't an event. It wasn't I found something on phones or anything like that. It was just like, we're just done. Or maybe they did find it. It's, it's varied. No matter what, it, there comes this language of them grieving externally and saying things like, oh, I'm just trying to... I'm trying to figure out, they go through the process of all the things, right? Um, wow, this sucks. Um, companionship, uh, partnership gone. Um, home, finances, splitting it to kids. What are we going to do? I mean, like, they're, they're now negotiating uh, externally what, what the new phase looks like. And then at some point, they'll say, wow, I wasted 12 years of my life with him or with her, right? Or, <laughs> really sad, I wasted 35 years or 25 years of my life, and the kids, you know, our, our marriage was centered around the kids. We invested way too much in there, and then they left, and we looked at each other, and we're like, I don't even know you, right? Um, and it's sad, and they, and they use this phrase. So, like, as much as we like to look at it and say it happens on the back, it happens in life, guys, right? Um, it's what a waste of time. Or perhaps it wasn't a relationship thing. I, it shows up in a lot in relationships, but not necessarily exclusively. Um, if you've ever had a, uh, a career change, either voluntarily or vol- involuntary career change, right? As in you got fired or, or you just decided to move on, um, you look back and you think, man, I just like, I spent 12 years of my life doing this job. I went to school for this. And now I'm like, I, I didn't realize I hated um, computers and numbers <laughs> until just now. And now I'm like, I got to get out of this. And I'm like, but I spent so much money. I've got school debt. I will be paying for years on school debt to finance an education that no longer applies to the career path that I'm going to go choose. I'm going to go raise cattle now, and I got an accounting degree, right? And now there's people going, well, you kind of need, no, you, you know what I mean? There's, there's a sense in which, you know, that was all just kind of a big, giant waste of my time, or, or experience-wise. I wasted all that experience. I, I went this route, and then it's just, it's just a, it was just a waste, man. I got to start over, and when I start over, starting over at 24 or whatever, it kind of, you can resonate with that. Starting over at 50, like, holy cow, that's a, that's a, uh, that's a mountain, man. That's an emotional, that's a, that's a really difficult thing to do. And we hate the idea of wasting things. And, and we kind of laugh it off because, you know, maybe you went to school for something that you didn't realize until your fourth year in that it wasn't going to be, you know, what you wanted to do with your life. Or you've got it. And then at the end, you realized, go to to apply, like it meant nothing, right? They like, they should print that on your diploma when you graduate with an English lit or a philosophy degree, you know? Like, congratulations, <laughs> it was a waste of time. Here you go, you know what I mean? And because it's not gonna help you get this job or whatever. It's, it's so difficult sometimes, right? This, this idea that we, we find ourselves saying, um, what a waste. And it's fairly common. We didn't get what we wanted, so we consider any activity or any means that was spent to get there as a 
waste. And it doesn't have to be emotional sometimes. It can just be everyday life, right? We drive to a restaurant only to find they're closed on Mondays. Gosh, what a waste. I wasted my time. When we drive to the gym, realize we forgot to throw in our gym bag. We left it on the counter in the bathroom or whatever this morning. Wow, what a wasted trip all the way over here. We choose to show up to church on March 28th and we forget to RSVP our kids and it's full because they're limiting the number of kids in the kids' room because of COVID. Listen, we don't blame the pastor, right? That's on us. We do that, right? So that's a commercial and a comment and a request uh, in, in both of those two things. But we are fairly utilitarian in that way. Utilitarian meaning I, 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 I use it and it's this, everything's just a means to an end. If it gets me to where I want to be, then, then I'll do it and then it's good. I'm doing this so that something will happen. I'm very, it's results oriented. That end justifies whatever means I get there. This is the means and that's the end. So we save, we study, we sacrifice, we do cardio. Uh, we choose Coke Zero instead of Coke. And then we step on the scale and when we see the exact same number that we started with and we say, well, what was all that for, right? <laughs> and then other people go, well, don't you feel better? Who cares how I feel? I want that number to be less. I want these pants to fit, right? We say there's a means that is uh, not as important as the end, and, and we get there. And then, and then, and then, unfortunately, and that's just a way of life, and we get that. We carry this into our faith and into our religion, and we would say we're willing to pursue virtue. In fact, at the very beginning of this series, we identified the, the seven virtues that the church, since the beginning of time, has said, these are things worth living for and worth striving for in your life. And if your life can be characterized in these seven areas, if, if the end of your life, people can say all of these things as characteristics about the way that you lived, and they do it with a straight face, then that's, that's a, a, a life well lived. Things like faith and hope and love and wisdom and justice and courage and temperance and, and all of these things. Those are virtues worth pursuing. And, and we say, okay, well, those are the means and we're willing to do these things so long as fortune pays off, so long as I get what's coming to me, so long as we start or continue to be lucky. I'll do these things as long as this is, is where it's at. And, it, and it's not, that's not how this thing works. You, if you've been a part of a church long enough, you know that you can be all of these things and still find yourself on the bottom of, wheel, uh, of the wheel of fortune, right? You still find yourself hanging on for dear life and your marriage can still fall apart. And it's, it's, really, it's, it's a really difficult thing to do because listen, if this worked, if this is all you had to do and then I could guarantee you that you know, life's gonna pay off, you'll be at the top of the wheel of fortune and things will be good, then like churches would never have to spend a penny on marketing or signage. They would be, the doors would be open, we'd be full, we'd never have to worry about anything like that, right? But that's not how it works. So what's the point then of pursuing any of these things? This, this whole series has been not about lottery tickets, that was a joke at the very beginning. It's about the pursuit of virtues in our life. How lucky are the unlucky? And if it helps them, well, perhaps there's a training ground about the pursuit of virtues that can't be learned when life is really good or is really hard to learn, at least, when life is good. That is so much easier to be taught when we find ourselves being unlucky. Is this even worth living for? Are these things worth pursuing? If there is no payoff, if the end result doesn't come in the way that we want it to come, what does being unlucky teach us? So there's gonna be three takeaways or three thoughts. If you're taking notes, you can write these things down. The first one is very general. It's a really easy, it's even if you're not religious uh, and you're not really Christian, the Bible doesn't you know, speak anything to you or, or it's just, a, you know, it's whatever, it's fine. Um, this is, a, this is great. This is an all-skate one. We, we all get to enjoy this one and, and go for it. Number one is this. Don't let the end result determine the value of what it took to get there, right? 
Don't let the end result justify or vindicate or, or create the value of was it worth it? There, there, there's a, a sense in which the means at which you get there is just as important as what it takes to, uh, to as, as what you find in the end. Uh, and I, I think that that's true. You'd find that in, in, in like a, any good wisdom self-help book or whatever. That, and that's not even that insightful, I don't think. And I've told you from the very beginning, this is not, I'm not a self-help person. I'm not a good life coach. So even, even, even me saying that um, causes more questions for me and, and raises a, a more interesting point. Um, because from a biblical standpoint, the reason that this phrase is true is because as Ecclesiastes points out, the end result in life doesn't matter anyways. What we build, and it's, I know it's a little bit pessimistic and perhaps even fatalistic or whatever, but um, when, when he would say the end doesn't justify the means, the means are important, it's because there's a denigration of the end. Like, what is life anyways? Like, everything you've bought is eventually gonna be garbage in a dump or dust or somebody else's. You end, you end with nothing. This is how this game works. It's really sad. I'm so sorry. You probably came for something a little bit more hopeful. But Ecclesiastes shoots it straight and says, the end, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. That's not lyrics to a song. That's literally the text of Ecclesiastes. A generation comes and a generation goes, and what's left? The earth which is basically just the mundanity of everything else, right? You, you come, you go, you have this really nice house, you've, you've saved up for your entire life and it's your retirement home and it's gonna be, you know, everything, it's gonna be everything you've ever wanted. And he's like, hey, I hate to break this to you, but 20 years from now, 30 years from now, maybe 40 years from now, somebody else is gonna be living in this house or they're gonna demolish it and build something different on top of it. It's gonna be a CVS, they're gonna sell stuff, right? It's like, ooh, that's sad. I know, it's really sad. This is, this is his, his doing it. Very little... And we said um, at the very beginning of the series that there's a, uh, like a philosophy book that kind of shaped a little bit of this, and, and um, it was called The Constellation of Philosophy, and it's this, this lady philosophy approaches this guy who's in prison, who's on, his, on, on the death row. He's about to die for what he believes, and she's like, I'm going to help you live these last few days. I'm not here to rescue you. I'm just here to help you live to the fullest, like to be the best human that you can possibly be. Um, I'm here to help you with the means. I'm not here to change the end. It doesn't matter. Um, but I, I want you to be the best person that you can possibly uh, be in this, in this way. And this, this applies in here as well. If we take what, philosophy, what, uh, what Solomon says to be true about the end result is whatever, it, it, it's, it's random anyways, then the point of it, the point of Ecclesiastes, the point of the wisdom part of this, and the point that we should take with us is that nothing is ever wasted that, that there's a, that the, the point is, um, it's not about what we do with our lives, but how we do it. The means are as important, if not more important than the end result. Our way of living is like patternistic. To think otherwise, Solomon would say, is ridiculous. So as a result, then, to follow up, uh, we, we, I read that passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. Here's the preface or the context setting that verse up. Here's this wisdom of this guy who's done all the things that apparently the point was, I've done all the things you think you want to do. So let me help you process through all of this. Go. So what, coming back to what do we do with our lives? What do we do with any of this? Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved what you do. Now, please don't take that as a free pass to go live your life, whatever. There's context to that. You probably want to research that. Don't leave your church going, my pastor just told me I get to do whatever I want and God's okay with it. 
no, that's not it. Um, always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. This is the idea of don't just dress up on certain holidays. Don't, don't buy something like I'm going to save this for like one day when it's really special. I've got this bottle of champagne that's just down in my basement. And someday on our 25th wedding anniversary, we're going to do it. He's like, no, 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 just come on. Live your life in a way that's like every day is this gift. And it's not the end goal that gets there. It's the means by which I get there. Don't just anoint your head with oil on certain holy days. Do it, all, do it as a part of it. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life, right? So he's very positive. And they're like, whoa, here's why. This isn't like self-help. This isn't like uber optimistic. He, he is this way because of this secondary part, because your life is meaningless anyways, right? This meaning life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under uh, the sun. And then he goes on, whatever your hand finds fit to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. Now, it's interesting because Paul in Colossians chapter three is doing this household code. Um, he's talking about husbands, love your wives, wives, love your husbands, kids, obey your parents, um, slaves in this time, which would be more employees than slaves the way that we think of them. But all this like, here's how you live your life, like do, do life in this way. And the very end of Colossians chapter three, or in that last part of that passage, verse 23, whatever you do, do it as if you're serving unto God, not unto man, Right. So Paul kind of like reaches back into this and he leaves off this back part because <laughs> it's like, well, we're not gonna, that's a little bit dark. But whatever you find, your hand finds to do, do with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. The means, the process, what you do. A human life contains many seasons, many stages. And no matter what stage you're in, there will always come the temptation to believe that the next stage is where good life begins. Just a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more freedom, and a little bit more money, and I bet I could be happy. Which is why junior hires can't wait to drive, drivers can't wait to date, daters can't wait to get engaged, engaged people can't wait to tie the knot, newlyweds can't wait to be not broke, new parents can't wait till the kids sleep in a little bit longer, Parents of teenagers can't wait till they're out of the house. Uh, it goes on and on and on it goes. And we always think in these moments, um, not now, but soon. Not now, I'm not happy yet, but I will be soon. And it, it, it causes us to not live well in this moment. And we say, in those moments, we reveal that the end, we're living as if the end is more important than the means. And Solomon's like, you never know if those are good. And, and it's not good anyways. You never know if the end will actually show up because life is random. Uh, and then B, who cares about any of that? Life is meaningless under the sun. Like enjoy it now in this way. Verse one of chapter 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. I look back on my life and be like, yeah, it was fine. It was, I'm, I thought it would be great. I always thought it would be when we moved. I always thought it would be when the kids were out of the house. I always thought it would be when there's no more diapers. I still think that that's probably a good season of life. I'm working on that right now. Um, so like guilty as charged, but like you, you look back and then, and then you get to that age and you, you would say, eh, it wasn't as good as I thought it would be, but soon it will be until you realize I missed it. If anybody believes that good things are always just around the corner, She'll find it hard to fully invest herself in the present 
Because the mantra, the way to live, the thing in the back of our mind, we'd never verbalize it or say it in this way, but we live it in this way, is that the present is a thing to be endured, but the future will be enjoyed. We endure in the present, hoping for someday for the future. And so if that's the case, then our end goal to justify why we should live by virtue is that it's going to return an investment of a good life. And yet the wheel of fortune spins, and it doesn't, and so then we're questioning whether it was all worth it in the first place. Why did I live generously if I'm going to get hosed in the process? Why did I live a chaste life? Why did I live with a... uh, a sense of holiness, a sense of discipline, a sense of I'm not going to do all the things that I want to do. I'm going to live a certain way because I think that's the best way to live. Uh, and I feel like a conviction of, of God in this way. Um, and then it doesn't turn out the way that I want it to. And I go, God, was that, was that all a waste? What a waste that was. Right before Solomon declares that bread is not to the wise nor favor to the man of knowledge, he says something very, very difficult. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. Whatever, then whatever it is in this moment, you do it. The pursuit of virtue is enough in and of itself, not as an end result or a means to get you somewhere or do something, but as a response to the grace, the everyday and ever-present sustaining grace of our Creator and Heavenly Father. So there's two more takeaways for this, and if you're taking notes, you can write these two things down. Again, these ones are a little bit more religious-based and come out of a, a conviction of a living as a response to the grace that I just mentioned. So if you're not a Christian, this is take or leave it, but if you're a Christian, this is, this is why. This is why the pursuit of, of virtue is important. Not because you're going to get a good life out of it. I don't know if you will or not. Here's what I do know. In him we move... We live and move and have our being. Thus, he is revealed both in our work and in our reward. In him, we live and move and have our being. Paul is talking, he pulls this philosophical way of doing life, and he says, yeah, I understand that you think this is true about all these gods that don't exist, but let me, let me put it in, into this compacted form of a God who does exist. The reason that we have anything to do with anything, the reason that we can live in the present now is because when we do it, it's re- we're revealing his grace to us in this way. He doesn't hide himself from us in our work and in our adversity only to reveal himself when we receive the rewards for our work. When we do this, whatever comes, however the wheel ends up, the way that we're living our life is a response to the grace that he's given to us, which is why when the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? Part of Jesus' prayer is, let's remind, remind, remember to thank God for your daily bread, for the bread that gets you through the day, for the sustenance that is the example of why you're here and what it's going to take to get through today. And the qualifier there is daily bread, not for my eternal bread. Thank you for the long storage that's going to get me through this really dark winter. This daily waiting, this daily sustainment Thank you, God, wherever I am at on this wheel, that you've gotten me to where I am and you're going to get me through this regardless. Number three, and the last kind of takeaway this, if a man labors out of love for God, he doesn't have to wait anxiously to see if his labor will pay off. His work is paying off as he does it. 
this has to do with uh, uh, you know vocational work. It has to do with, with the, the language here is because part of the thing is you know in the in the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther really dove into not allowing our personal life, not allowing our religious life to be divorced from our everyday working life. It's not just the, the priests or the pastors whose work is being watched and evaluated by God. It's as you uh, clean the streets and as you raise the cattle and as you milk the cows and as you raise a farm and raise a family, all of that work is seen as a response to this. It was very, very um, like all-encompassing in life. And, and your response to God is not what you show up and do on a Sunday, but how you do your work. It's the means at which you do it. And if you live out that work and do your work, whether you're a student right now going to school and the way that you do homework and the way that you study, or if you're a college student, right, uh, in, in the way that you do whatever college students do, right, um, work, I guess. I don't know, whatever. If you're, if you're, if you're a, 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 a new parent in the way that you raise your kid, if you're a business owner, the way that you manage employees and work payroll, when you do it in such a way that encompasses and, and, and follows in line with the pursuit of these virtues, love, joy, peace, pay, all these kind of things, temperance, whatever, all of those things are shaped in a certain way that we're, we're living this out. I'm glorifying God in my work. I don't, I'm not doing this to like create something someday that will then bring glory to God, right? This business may or may fail or it may succeed. I don't know. It's not going to be if it succeed, then God will be glorified. He's glorified in the way that I do it right now. It's the spirituality of the present. It's the not the end goal of this. It's not someday my 35-year marriage will be a testimony to the greatness of God's conviction uh, or, or, or his blessing or, uh, of my life. It's this every day. It's this when you wake up today and he makes you mad and you choose to overlook it and you forgive him even without even telling him because to forgive him verbally would only make him more mad and all this kind of this drama there, whatever. It's, it's fine. I'm choosing today to live this out. I'm choosing to be temperate in this moment. I'm choosing love. I'm choosing joy. I'm choosing patience. I'm choosing kindness. I'm choosing faithfulness, and I'm choosing gentleness in this moment. That is how you live it out. That's a, that's a better, according to this way of, of, of thinking, way of doing it than to say someday this will be worth something that people will be like, wow, that's amazing. It's amazing right now if you'll choose to see it in that way. When we do it, we don't have to wait to see if the labor pays off. The work is paying off as we do it. The love of God is the meaning of life. The point of planting the field is not to plant the field. The field is planted so a man might know God in the planting process of it. God is present everywhere at all times, and the present moment is a gift. He's given each and every one of us that we might have something to return to him. So, what that means for us is that in the way that we raise our kids and run a business and engage in a marriage relationship or whatever, however the end result of it turns out to be, it's not, we, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't ever put into language, well, if it didn't come out the way that I thought it would be, that was a waste of time. That proves that the end was always more important than the means. It's not a waste. Nothing is ever a waste. 
God is in it in the present. And am I doing this? Am I living this out? Am I operating this way? It's about right now. It's about right now because Solomon says, who knows what it will look like? It's all toil. It's all meaningless underneath the sun. And nobody's going to care anyways. What is, what is the point of it now is, are you, pursuing, are you pursuing all of the virtues? Andrew, can you put those virtues back on, this, on the screen? Are you, per, are you pursuing these things in life in whatever it is that you're doing? Because if you are, then whatever, however it turns up on the wheel, maybe it works. Maybe your business succeeds. Maybe you stay married for 40 years. Maybe you, you pass away together, like, like the movie. What's that notebook movie? They died the same day holding hands, right, or whatever. It's like, oh my gosh, that was it. That's, that's the end goal, right? Maybe, I don't know. But we look at this and say, if I, can, if I can do whatever, then if I can do it with these things in mind, and if I can do this with a straight face and say, yes, I lived it out with the greatest sense of justice that I could and the greatest sense of courage that I could and the greatest sense of temperance that I could, then come what may, however it ends up on the wheel, because that's all just fortune and that's just sort of random. And I'm being true to God in this way and I'm thankful and I'm gracious for this daily sustenance and this daily bread to get me through this moment. And my commitment and my response to that grace is to do whatever I do with this stuff in mind. And when we do it in that way, guys, it's never a waste of time. It's never a waste of time. It might not turn out how you wanted it to turn out. And you can be sad and sorrowful that it's not, that it's gone, that it, it didn't work out with you and Matt James, the bachelor. It's fine. But I learned a lot. I stayed true to myself the entire time. And my path is just different, right? And, and uh, I'm living in a response to the grace that's been shown to me in this moment, and I do it in this way. That is why we should pursue virtues in the way that says it's not just an end goal that makes it work. It's the means to get there. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is I don't know what we're building. I don't know... Um, uh, what season of life is uh, that we each find ourselves in to say this is what's most important now and this is, what, and, and we should have goals and end goals and, and, and we should want marriages to work and businesses to succeed and money to be made and retirements to grow and all that kind of stuff. That's not necessarily bad in that way, but um, I pray that you would help give us a sense of peace about it, knowing that throughout the process, the thing that we can control is doing it in a way that represents some of the virtues that are presented in that way. Um, and that we would be the type of people who um, live at a, a 10,000 foot view on, on end results and, and the factors involved in that and recognize that there's a ton of life that is random and there's a ton of fortune that is just random. And our, what we can control is how we live in response to the grace that you've shown us. So give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to do something about it. In your name, amen.